0: A lot of people believe that we have a weight loss problem, but we actually don't. The vast majority of people, in fact, the overwhelming majority of people actually can lose a fairly substantial amount of weight. The problem is actually, can you maintain that? And for most people it's no.
1: Welcome to the show where we help you make smart nutrition simple. If you want proven nutrition strategies to help you build a better body and create the energy to show up for your family without overly restrictive and unrealistic dieting, then you're in the right place. Make sure to subscribe and enjoy this episode. Daniel DeBrock, welcome to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show. What's up, brother? Hey, man. Thanks so much for having me on. It's good to be here. It's an absolute pleasure having you on. You're obviously deep in the strength and conditioning field and as an educator uh, with Kabuki Strength, um, you've got a ton of experience both in the trenches as well as kind of in the literature, which makes me really excited to have this conversation with you. I'm curious, what brought you into that position? Like, Tell us, I guess, tell us what you do and how you got into that position.
0: I'm going to say chance, (laughs) you know, so uh, a few years ago I saw a a buddy of mine, Andrew Coates. I'm not sure if you know who he is. Yeah. I know who he is through, through social. Yeah. So he um, had started kind of writing for T nation and and things like that. And so I randomly just reached out to him and I was like, Hey, like, how, how'd you get published? He kind of gave me this whole spiel and I was like, Oh, okay. And. So then I just started reaching out to different publications and submitting articles. And then I had one article that was approved and I was like, oh, okay, cool. And they published it. And then I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'll, maybe I'll write another one. So I wrote another one, submitted it. It got accepted to another place. And I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. And then I wrote another one and, and they kept getting accepted. And they didn't have any edits for me. They didn't change anything. It was all just accepted and published as is. And I I thought that was just the norm. And then I was talking to other people and they were like, no, that's not normal. Normally they'll work on all this stuff. And so after a couple of months, I started realizing that I had a bit of an aptitude for writing. And then that just kind of spurred me on to writing for other publications. So I wrote for Kabuki. I wrote like a very, very long article on uh, recovery. So I think it's like 8,000 words or something like that. And it covers most recovery modalities. It's very in-depth and research heavy. And then it was after that, I believe that, uh, they reached out to me and they're like, Hey, like we actually have a new position opening. We'd like you to apply for it as, as a mm-hmm. coach. So I was like, okay, sure. So I applied, uh, ended up getting hired and then worked with them for about two years. And then about six months ago, they just reached out to me one day and they're like, Hey, uh, we're really looking to expand our educational, uh, side of things. And we'd like you to be director of education. So I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds great. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> um, nice. Because I had written a bunch for them. I've done a bunch of their educational stuff. I've done a bunch of educational stuff for other people and collaborated with them and stuff. And so, yeah. So that's kind of how I got into position.
1: Amazing. That's, it's yeah. funny how it works like yeah. that. I mean, sure. it, well, look, you, you're, you are a great writer. Um, I read a couple of your articles and I
0: appreciate
1: that. you're clearly well read, which I think is really important. And and I also think it's really important to, to be rooted in the science to some degree when it comes to obviously strength training and conditioning and, and body composition changes. And especially given the nature of our industry and just some of the, misinformation perhaps, or misrepresentation of modalities that's out there. And so I, I think it makes a lot of sense as to why, you know, those articles were accepted and why they're relevant for the respective fields. But with that said, I'm curious, and and actually, I'd love our listeners just to understand a little bit more about what Kabuki is.
0: So Kabuki's strength is kind of a lot of things. there's there's a couple things, and the main premise is built off of, you know, building a quality life through strength, right? So, you know, anyone who's ever been injured knows that it's, it's terrible, and it really has a negative impact on your life, you know, and so they design equipment, they develop educational programs and products and coaching to first and foremost, help people do that. Now, what that might mean from person to person can be drastically different for a person a it could literally just be I just don't want to be in pain anymore, and I want to play with my kids. For person B, it could mean being a world champion, breaking world records, whatever. But that's basically kind of the the the, the mission, essentially, of Kabuki. Yeah, it's building resiliency through through strength.
1: I love that. And I think it segues really into one of the main things that I wanted to discuss with you, which really is the value of strength training as it pertains to obviously not just power athletes and professional athletes, but really the general population specifically with respect to, while I think quality of life and injury prevention is important. I also want to parlay it with um, the impact on body composition change Mm -hmm. and what a fundamental principle strength training is because Daniel, there's a lot of misinformation around what needs to happen from an exercise standpoint in order to lose body fat. And a lot of that information, if you will, is geared towards excessive amounts of cardiovascular exercise, the quote-unquote high-intensity interval training, which is very misrepresented. You get where I'm going here with bootcamp-style workouts, all of that kind of stuff. So I, I would love kind of your take on principles of strength training as it pertains to body
0: composition change. So when it comes to... Body weight management in general. There's a variety of different strategies, but essentially you're going to be utilizing either one or a combination of. Generally, you're going to have most success by using a combination of either A, increasing energy expenditure, B, uh, decreasing caloric intake, or C, again, the combination of the two. Now, for those people who maybe aren't familiar about how weight regulation works, it's essentially governed by something called the energy balance. And I think one of the tricky things for, for a lot of people is they hear, you know, about hormones and they hear about age and gender and how all these things impact, you know, weight regulation, and it ends up being pitted against energy balance. It's like, oh, energy balance is not real because what about hormones? And mm. the reality is when we discuss energy balance, this is all encompassing. So sex, age, activity level, uh, hormones, disease, metabolic conditions, all of these things are already factored into this equation, right, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so energy balance is the regulator of body weight, period, end of discussion, essentially, right? And when it comes to manipulating your body weight over time, there's, there's a lot of things that we need to kind of look into. So what the research has shown is consistently there are a couple key indicators of successful weight loss and weight maintenance. Now, before I get into what the weight maintenance is, I want to kind of differentiate between weight loss and weight maintenance. A lot of people believe that we have a weight loss problem, but we actually don't. The vast majority of people, in fact, the overwhelming majority of people actually can lose a fairly substantial amount of weight. Now, in the literature, this is typically identified as uh, losing roughly 5 to 10% of your body weight. A lot of the times it's about 10%. Most people can successfully do that. The problem is actually, can you maintain that? And for most people, it's no. And when we see these, you know, figures like 95% of dieters fail, that's what they're referring to, right? They actually succeed in losing weight initially, most of them. However, if you follow up two years, three years, five years, most of them have gone back to their previous weight, and in some cases actually exceeded their initial weight. And so this is a problem for a variety of reasons. And weight management is a very complex subject. But There are a couple of things that we've seen that are essentially very strongly associated with long-term weight maintenance, uh, which are regular physical activity. Again, I'm non-specific in that, but regular physical exercise uh, to some sort of frequent weight measurement, right? Whether it's daily, every other day, three times a week, or even weekly, whatever it is, measuring your weight on a fairly regular basis has a productive uh, effect on that. And third is adopting some sort of nutritional strategy. You know, it doesn't matter what nutritional strategy it is. So long as you're checking off the main boxes, that's what's really important. And then I would add a fourth because this is also, especially more recently, has become something that's more talked about now in in more of the public sphere is some sort of social support. Social Mm, support seems to be incredibly powerful. And unsurprisingly, this is one of the large reasons why we see, as you alluded to earlier, people you know, just running to places like CrossFit boxes or Orange Theory or, you know, some sort of group exercise class. It's because they have that social element. And that's an incredibly compelling element as well for, you know, feeling like you have a community, feeling like you have that social support. Um, It's very, very important as well. But in terms of resistance training, and, you know, how that's going to play a role in that sort of dynamic resistance training does a couple of things. First, obviously you're going to build strength. You're going to build, you know, muscularity. You're going to build uh, just general resiliency through your tissues, physically being more capable of doing a variety of different things, but also, and very, very importantly, you're going to preserve muscle mass, right? So if you were dieting and your goal is to lose a a large amount of weight, let's just say over 15 or 20 pounds, right? The probability that you're going to maintain your muscle is pretty much zero unless you're resistance training. I don't care how much protein you're eating, you need to be having some sort of amount of tension exerted on your muscles in order for your body to recognize that you actually need this. You need to maintain muscle mass through resistance training right? Now, it doesn't necessarily need to be strength training. You could be doing bodybuilding or some sort of non-specific type of training, but it does need to occur if you want to preserve your muscle mass. Now, a lot of people, probably women more particularly, are going to be concerned about, you know, quote unquote, looking too bulky. This is going to be an issue for probably 0.0000001% of individuals, right? It's just not going to be an issue for the vast majority of people. Muscle is actually what gives you that, you know, really beautiful aesthetic look, right? If we're talking about the typical definition of, of beauty standards, that's what gives you that look. A lot of people will lose weight and then they'll be like, oh, now I just kind of look like a flabby skeleton, right? Because they've lost a lot of their muscle mass, which gives them that definition, that curvy look for, for women and that more like kind of broad shoulders look for, for men. They're looking for the V taper. So that's kind of in a, in a nutshell, you know, some of the impact that that resistance training has and some of the main priorities that you need to focus on if weight loss is a is, uh, the objectives.
1: It's not unreasonable to lose weight, but losing weight the right way in a way where you can actually maintain the weight loss without necessarily losing a significant portion of lean muscle tissue in the process is really what the game is all about. And it's why it's so important for people to implement strength training in the process to not only prioritize fat loss versus weight loss, Right. But also to improve actual body composition, you have more muscle definition while you have less body fat. Typically, that means your clothes fit better. You like what you see in the mirror better. And what I think is important for people to understand is the differences between strength training and traditional cardio as it pertains to facilitating this process. And perhaps just understanding that it's not about simply expending calories through exercise. Instead, that caloric control can be created much more effectively through dieting, through nutritional control. Whereas the exercise component really becomes a a product of how do I preserve as much lean muscle tissue, Mm -hmm. if not improve it as possible?
0: Yeah. So there's quite a bit of research on something called high flux. So where energy balance essentially is the relationship between energy intake and energy expenditure. Energy flux refers to the relationship between both, whether they're high or low or moderate or whatever. And these are relative terms. But as an example, let's say you consume 3,000 calories a day and you expend 3,000 calories a day, roughly. You're what's considered... you know, eucaloric or at at an energy stable or energy balance kind of position. Now you can consume 4,000 calories and also increase energy expenditure through exercise, walking, various other means, and still be at energy balance, right? So the flux that exists between energy intake and expenditure can put you at a high flux, which would be consuming more calories, but exercising or not exercising necessarily, but expending more energy or consuming lower calories and expending less energy. Mm -hmm. And what the research has shown is quite often when it comes to weight loss, adopting a higher flux approach has been shown to have more productive effects in terms of weight maintenance over the long term. Now, this is for a variety of reasons, not just because people are exercising excessively, right? One, generally speaking, if you're more active, this has become a lifestyle integrated behavior right? So for instance, if we look at vegans, a lot of the research shows that vegans are some of the healthiest individuals and they live the longest. Are they actually the healthiest though? And do they actually live the longest? Is that something right. specific to vegan diets? No, you know, it's not. When we look closer, what we see is that typically because of vegan is Fairly extreme. These people are not just using the vegan diet; they are also very health conscious. Right? right? They're typically exercising very regularly. They're very active. So there's a lot of other uh, things that come along with this vegan diet. Right? There's a sort of uh, perception of values that's also integrated in their decision to become a vegan in the first place. So there's multiple variables that are interacting to create this outcome. And when we look at someone who's let's say adopting a higher flux approach, you know, people are adopting these more active and healthy lifestyle habits. It's not just that they're moving more, although that is a huge component, right? So there's a variety of different things that can kind of work synergistically to create momentum. Um, This is seen in Amish communities. Generally Amish uh, individuals have much, much lower uh, rates of obesity, less chronic health issues. There's a variety of different things in, in communities like that that are typically more physically active. They have more laborious jobs, right? They're carpenters, they're builders. They don't drive everywhere. They're walking and doing things like that. So uh, they also have a higher step count by a fairer margin as well, right? So what that does indicate or suggest, along with a lot of the other research, is that by increasing your energy expenditure, you can go a long way to reduce your body weight in conjunction with maybe a caloric deficit. Now, the problem with only utilizing energy expenditure, like you're talking about increasing your cardio, doing all these hit and things like that, is there does come a point of diminishing returns, where if you keep pushing and you just keep adding steps, if, if we're utilizing a step count as like a standardized thing, it can increase your uh, appetite signaling or it can, I don't want to mm-hmm. say dysregulate, but your appetite signaling is technically responding in a very normal way, but it's going to become quote unquote dysregulated, which means your hunger is going to ramp up. And you're like, oh my God, I, I need to consume more foods right? So you're going to have this drive to consume more foods to kind of balance out this significant loss of energy. So there is a bit of a balancing act there where, you know, increasing energy expenditure up to a point can be very good, very productive for all your health markers for your body weight and all that stuff, but going too far can actually be counterproductive, maybe even cause you to gain weight. And this is one of the really important aspects of resistance training, right? So resistance training is going to be a very, very beneficial thing, because one, it's going to, again, help tack on additional energy expenditure. So it's going to assist you in the weight loss process, but it's going to build strength and it's going to maintain strength or potentially even improve strength as you go and lose weight. Right? Mm-hmm. If you're not doing that, you are probably going to lose a fair amount of strength and you're probably going to lose a fair amount of muscle mass as well. Now there's something independently beneficial to uh, strength training as well, right in terms of physical health so as we age one of the biggest risk factors for elderly populations is going to be a, a fall risk right so level of muscle mass and strength is a huge preventative right. agent for you know injury and even death in in elderly populations in some cases so that's really important as well but again if you're not doing any resistance training you're just going to be catabolizing your muscle right? right whereas if we're doing resistance training and we maintain you know a moderate or high protein intake you know let's say 1.6 to, to 2.2 grams per kilogram if you're dieting you probably want to be on that higher end just in case you're going to be slowing down the rate of protein breakdown but you're going to be let's say optimizing the rate of synthesis anyways right mm-hmm. because you're in a caloric deficit so it's not right. going to be optimal for muscle growth but it's going to be doing a great job in terms of preventing any sort of muscle loss And if you do a good job with your nutrition and resistance training, and, you know, if you choose to incorporate it, some sort of cardiovascular activities or even just walking, so low aerobic, you know, capacity movements, you're going to preserve almost all of your muscle. Right.
1: right? It's very well said, but I, I just think it's so important that we do everything that we can to shift the narrative around what it actually takes to lose weight in the appropriate way to be able to keep it off. And this is why I, I really think it's important that we talk about strength training. We talk about resistance training. We talk about leveraging, creating a caloric deficit from mostly from our nutrition Uh, While implementing exercises that are going to support that lean muscle tissue through the process to say nothing, if I'm glad that you brought up the importance of lean muscle mass, especially as we age, especially because we know that, you know, past the age of 30, and it's probably even lower now because kids are so physically inactive, but we're losing muscle mass. If we're not physically active, we're not doing anything to maintain it over the age of 30, um, at a significant rate to the degree that we obviously see what's happening in the later stages of life, in terms of quality of life, lack of lean muscle tissue, inability to be physically active, and, and everything that comes with it, just the gross degeneration that happens. And so I, I think, again, it's so important in the context of, obviously, uh, appropriate weight loss, fat loss, body composition change, but also just in terms of quality of life. And, and we know very clearly around the importance of strength as we age and just being stronger has a much higher uh, a longevity factor, right? If you're stronger invariably,
0: you're the likelihood that you live longer is much better. And I mean, w- one additional point that I didn't mention is if you lose a bunch of muscle mass, well, muscle mass is pretty metabolically costly, Right. And so is that really going to be such a huge game changer? Well, it depends on the context, right? Because if we're looking at it from the standpoint of a week or a month, not, maybe not, but if we're looking at it over several years, absolutely, it can right. make a huge difference because there's, there's quite a bit of research that's actually shown like, you know, very subtle changes, you know, like we're talking 150 calories a day increased, maybe, you know, even 100 calories increase per day can result in a substantial amount of weight gain over, you know, three, six, 10 years, right? So if you're preserving muscle mass, you are going to be increasing your energy expenditure just through having more muscle and having more tissue that's, that's metabolically costly. But then beyond that, it's also more likely that you're going to be doing a little bit more work, right? If you're caring about these things, if you're, if you're preserving muscle mass, you're probably going to also maintain a little bit higher levels of activity as well. And so that additionally is going to assist you in burning more energy. Mm-hmm. So like if you weigh 150 pounds versus let's say 100 and maybe 135 pounds because you lost 15 pounds of muscle as you lost a bunch of other fat, well, that's 15 pounds less weight that you're carrying around. So standing up is now less energetically costly because you have less actual physical weight, right? And so again, might not make a difference, you know, in an hour, but over the span of a day, several days, weeks, years, it it can absolutely add up.
1: You know, what else is is relevant is just the yo-yo dieting scenario in that understanding, like, listen, if we lose 20 pounds, that's great. And 20 pounds of weight of which maybe eight, to 12 pounds of that could be lean muscle tissue, depending on how aggressively and what the time frame is of dieting. Right. And, but then what happens is invariably per statistics, person's going to gain that weight back and probably in a relatively short period of time of which that weight regain is certainly not going to be at the same distribution of fat to muscle ratio right, they're going to gain back a lot more fat mass, in which case every time that happens, and we see this now is people that have yo-yo dieted multiple times over years and years and years, we're talking 10, 20 years, right? We're in a situation where they really have created some level of metabolic adaptation, if you will, to the degree that they don't have nearly as much muscle mass to fat mass ratio. So it's affecting their ability to handle you know, a, a reasonable amount of calorie intake.
0: A lot of the stuff when it comes to weight management is behavior driven, right? So one of the big reasons why a lot of these diets fail is because they're not really sustainable. You know, I mean, people always want to pit certain diets against each other and say, oh, should I eat high carb, low carb, this, that, keto, carnivore, whatever. But the reality is if you were to go on, let's say on Facebook and just type in keto, keto group, you're going to find 20,000 followers. Who all are experiencing fantastic results. Now type in vegan diet group, and you're going to find a group of 20,000 followers who have all great results. And just keep repeating that for carnivore and this, that, and the other. And, and basically, my point here is to say that all dietary approaches, and this has been studied very, very extensively, all dietary approaches, when calories and protein are controlled for, produce almost identical rates of weight loss and, and total amounts of weight loss as well. Right. So essentially what that means is that the diet that's going to be best for you is going to be something that's more sustainable, not just from like the structural standpoint of the diet, but in terms of the progression strategies as well. So for me, I've literally never prescribed a quote unquote diet for anyone. I've never said, I want you to eat keto, or I want you to do this or do that. What I do is I look at the individual, like let's, let's say I'm taking on a new client, right? We'll do a needs analysis and we'll say, okay, what are your goals? And then once I understand their goals, we've had that conversation. So I can clarify exactly what it is I'm looking for. Then we start to get into their history. What's your previous history of dieting? What has worked? What hasn't worked? What do you prefer? Why, why did it work? But not, it doesn't work now. Like what, what derailed you? You know, um, do you have a, previous history with disordered eating behavior? Do you have any injuries? Do you have any performance-based goals? And just so on and so on. So we kind of go down the rabbit hole and I can really understand this individual's context, you know, including if they eat while they're bored, if they have some sort of, you know, emotional dysregulation that causes them to, you know, look to food as, let's say, comfort food or whatever it might be. Once I understand all these things, then we can start looking at practical solutions. And this is where implementation comes in. You have kind of process-oriented goals versus outcome-oriented goals. So their goal might be to lose, let's say, 50 pounds. But if your goal is to lose 50 pounds, you're going to be waiting a very long time before you can celebrate. Whereas if, if you know the focus is education, then we can kind of explain to them how the behaviors that we're going to implement are going to directly tie into their long-term outcome. And we can start seeing those wins stack themselves up day by day, week by week, which is hugely motivating and builds mm-hmm. up their sense of self-efficacy. Now, let's say an individual says no previous experience of dieting and uh, they're, they need to lose like 70 pounds, like they're really overweight. Okay, it's probably pretty clear that you know, in this hypothetical situation, they don't really know a lot about food or nutrition or a lot of these things. They've never really dieted before, so we need to start them off fairly small. So what I might do is start them off with some very simple behaviors that we'll discuss. So if I'm working with you, for instance, I might say, okay, these are going to be the main things that we want to work towards. These are the really, really big things. Now, how we get there is going to be determined by you and me working collaboratively. The reason why I need buy-in is because if they don't buy-in, they're not going to adhere to it. Adherence has to be the foundation of any sort of intervention for success. So it's not enough for me to just say, hey, here's how you lose weight, therefore do it. I need to say, Hey, here's how the process of weight loss occurs, but there's a variety of different ways we can get there. So based on your current lifestyle and constraints and preferences and all of that stuff, you know, here's some good areas where I think we should start. And now we have a negotiation about what they think they can do. And believe me when I say like, if the individual needs to start off extremely small, I've literally just told someone, I just want you to start by getting your shoes on and walking around your block and then coming back in that's it. Mm-hmm. I've actually started people there. I know people will make fun of it. They'll be like, oh, that's nothing. That's so ridiculous. But you have to start an individual where they're at. And some people literally just are in that position. Now, if they're more advanced, we can start them further ahead. Now, if they can nail that easy behavior, then and we can progress them quickly, then absolutely we'll progress them as fast as they can. But I will never progress someone beyond their ability to execute these behaviors. And how you know whether or not you can pro- progress someone is are they doing with the behaviors? Are they consistent with them or are they not? It's as simple as that. And and so ultimately that's going to determine your starting point and that's going to, or at least should sort of imply what the next progressive step should be. And they should also be made aware of that if you're working with a client. Now, if this is you, again, you can do this whole process for yourself um, and just kind of go over that and see what the next best step is going to be. An example, you know, that I, that I often give is, you know, if your goal is to squat 700 pounds. I'm not going to put 700 pounds in the bar and just say, okay, let's just try squatting it. It's like, no, you're going to die, you know, because you can only squat maybe 100 pounds. So, okay, let's squat maybe 50 pounds and do that for a couple reps. And then we'll build up some momentum and eventually get stronger. And then you can go to 70 pounds and 80 pounds, 100, mm-hmm. and then we can start building up. And so now your max is now 200 pounds after a while. I mean, that's not 700, but it's a lot better. We've doubled your old max. And then we keep going, and eventually we might reach 700. It's the same thing with nutrition, with training, with any intervention, anything that's behavior driven has to be progressive, and you have to take the actual outcome that's being achieved. And if you're going too fast and they're just not able to adhere, there's no problem in regressing it. And even if they are excellent 99% of the time, there might be periods in their life where they're moving, or maybe they're going through exams at school, or they're going through a health issue. Maybe their family, someone in their family just died. There can be a variety of things where temporarily they will need to regress. And that's not necessarily a problem, but it is a conversation that needs to be had. So you need to make sure that the intervention is specifically designed for the individual and it's being appropriately prescribed. I can
1: appreciate where it's it's focusing on the fundamental behaviors because they've always got something, well, one, that they can build up, but two, that they can fall back on when things do get challenging, which invariably they will. And so b- helping them build those skills and behaviors is paramount in giving them the tools to be successful long-term. And we strongly believe in that. And I talk about it all the time. I can appreciate the analogy with squatting 700 pounds because intuitively we wouldn't walk into the gym and say, I'm just going to go for 700 pounds. But when it comes to nutrition, we have the perception, especially people that are just getting started may have, may not have a lot of nutrition knowledge nor experience and feel like they should be going directly to a full macro distribution Mm -hmm. And training five days a week and whatever, all, all all of the things that they feel like they need to be doing or else they're a failure. What's the conversation look like around setting realistic expectations when it comes to where to get started, what works best for them relative to what they think they should be doing by virtue of what they see
0: the influencer on social media doing and so on? Well, I mean, it's exactly that. It's just a conversation right? Like there have been times where I've had clients very rarely, but there have been times where I've had a client who just was not willing to listen and they are like, nope, this is what I need to be doing. And so what I did was I said, okay, here's what I think is going to happen. I think you're going to see a lot of success initially. You're going to lose a lot of weight within the first week, maybe a week and a half, 10 days, something like that. And then it's going to be a little tougher. And then by about week three, you're going to be running into some, some problems with adherence. You know, the diet fatigue is going to start setting in because you're going a very extreme approach. And then probably within the first six weeks, you're gonna have an instance where you're gonna be out with your friends and you're gonna to want to eat that food, but you're not gonna be allowed based on the approach you're wanting. And then you're probably gonna binge at some point. Yeah, the screw. It. And and I was like, that's what I think is gonna happen because that's what the research shows, and that's what my my own personal experience shows from coaching for I don't know how many freaking people now, right? You know, and I mean, I wasn't quite as detailed in my description, but essentially that's what I said, right? Right. And I let them do it. Basically played out exactly how you would assume it would play out. And then after that, they came to me, but now I had their attention and now I had their buying because I acknowledged what they were saying. I let them do it. I didn't just say, no, you're not going to do it. I don't care what you say, because in my opinion, I was like, they're just going to do it anyway. So I may as well let them do it, but then explain what I think is going to happen. Then when they fail, now they're going to be like, oh maybe he does know what he's talking about. But then beyond that, I've also built up that sense of relatedness between us. I built up that rapport and that trust because by letting them do that and explaining what's going to happen, they validated it for themselves, but they're like, Hey, he knew it was going to happen, but he still respected my autonomy. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think sometimes even in those really difficult cases, if you have those conversations, it can still be really beneficial and it can help increase athlete buy-in over time. But most of the time, that's not going to be the case. Usually what I'll do is I'll just say, hey, education is probably one of the biggest things that, that I really focus on, right? So if people have an issue, I'll just be like, okay, so what are your concerns with with this potential approach, you know, if they do have a concern or like, you know, why do you want to do this diet? And then they'll tell me and I'll be like, okay, why? And then they'll explain that and then I'll say why. And so essentially, I just, I start exhausting their knowledge base an example of this would be, Hey, I want to cut out carbs because, you know, I, I read about the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis and blah, blah, blah. Right. And they are like, okay, so why do carbohydrates cause fat? Oh, because when carbs, when you eat carbs, um, they spike your insulin and insulin it, it will drive nutrients into your fat. It's like, it's not right. exactly true, but okay. Uh, sure. So does that happen all the time? They're like, yes. I'm like, okay, well, what about athletes? What about vegans who primarily just eat carbohydrates? What about, you know, eating an anaimo bar? is an anaimo bar really bad? Sugar is incredibly high in there, but it has a very low, you know, glycemic load because it's got tons of fat in it. Should we avoid whey protein? Because that actually has a higher uh, glycemic uh, response than like white bread or a bunch of other, you know, carbohydrates. Right. What about all these things? Right. And so I, instead of just telling them they're wrong, I start asking them questions. And then once they exhaust it, then I'll kind of be like, okay, so this is very common, right? But again, I don't want to tell people they're wrong because if you're just, if, if you tell me something and I'm like, no, nah, you're wrong. Even if I'm doing it nicely, I've automatically created a bit of tension. You know, 100%. so instead you kind of want to do what you can to, to communicate in a way that's like respectful and acknowledging them, but then being like, yeah, you know, honestly, that's a super common thing that a lot of people believe. What about this? What about this? What about this? And you just right. kind of ask a couple of questions to make them kind of think a little bit and be like, huh, you know what? I actually don't know about that. I don't have a good answer. And then that's where I can kind of jump in and say, okay, so here's the reason why the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis or whatever it is we're talking about, it leaves a little bit to be desired. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you can kind of get into it and be like, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I would like to use this approach. And if you're okay with that, let's just experiment with it. If it doesn't work, we'll use your weight. But if it does work, then, you know, and you start losing weight, then, Hey, let's continue with that. Is that, does that sound fair? You know, so kind of again, it's a negotiation. I'm never just telling people what to do. You kind of negotiate and just have that conversation. Just talk to them like they're a person. Don't talk down to them. Don't be a dick. But then at the same time, don't just like be a flop and and not you know do your job, right? So it's kind of a fine balance. You know,
1: you know, one of the beautiful things about where we are now, and I don't know if you experience this, but oftentimes the conversations I have with prospective clients is really supporting them in acknowledging why so many of the things that they've done and tried in the past haven't actually worked for them. Right. And initially Keep it's important. this yeah. work, you know, keto worked for me. I'm like, did it work? Right. Did it, re- like, I think you mentioned earlier, it did, it, if it really worked, like, why don't you just go do it again? Well, because I gained the way back and it wasn't sustainable. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. So it it wasn't really realistic for you and it wasn't sustainable. And why did you feel that way? Because of X, Y, Z. And so would it be reasonable to assume that if we did this instead, that that would probably work better for you so that you would have more flexibility and freedom so you could enjoy your weekend so you could actually eat dinner with the family and not have to make something completely different and speaking the same wavelength there. But I think so many people now are in a position where they've tried all these things. They just need to be reassured that. They're not at fault. It's not their fault that they've Mm -hmm. done them. It's really leveraging them. And I think it's, it's fantastic that they care enough to try these things and want to see progress, just helping them identify with what can they take away from these? Why was it specifically that it didn't ultimately work for them? What aspects of it did they enjoy? What aspects did they not? And that's really towards your point of really individualizing the process and being the coach that helps them kind of toggle the journey in a way that's going to fit within their lifestyle,
0: with their readiness for change, with their commitment level. Once you've had that conversation with them, it also, it sort of gets them to reevaluate their definition of success because it's like, oh no, I did this and it worked. It's like, Like you said, you're like, did it though? Right. You know, And, and it kind of gets the cogs turning a little bit. So now when they're defining something as successful, it's like long-term sustainability is, is what's defined as success in their head now, which I think is an incredibly important shift of perspective.
1: As we're talking through this, I imagine as someone who enjoys reading research, who's rooted in education and, and the science, tell me what, if anything, what really frustrates you about our industry, specifically with nutrition and or with fitness as it stands right now?
0: Yeah, so this is something I've thought about a lot actually lately. So um recently on my Instagram, I started like weekly now. I I do this particular post, which I think I've only done it twice now. And it's called controversy of the week. I'm trying to maybe figure out like a catchier, you know, thing to kind of brand it in. But essentially I talk about something that's controversial, but I do it in a way that's balanced and nuanced and actually reflective of both the research and experiential data. And The reason I do that, and this is kind of part of my intro of every single video that I do, is people are reluctant to talk about, you know, difficult or stigmatized conversations. And that is a huge problem, huge problem, because I've seen medical doctors talk about obesity as a disease. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. Clinically, sure, that's that's a, a relevant term. But if you can imagine how people are so hesitant to even classify foods as good or bad because of what they can do in terms of stigmatizing particular foods to the public. People are so hesitant to even say, oh, this is a good food or a junk food, right? They're always like, oh, fun foods. So they'll, they'll really go out of their way. Yet no one's considering the impact that calling obesity a disease is going to have. I mean, most people don't even know the difference between a communicable and non-communicable disease, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you say, oh, obesity is a disease, most people are like, oh, yep, I inherited obesity from my family. It's a genetic condition. And it's like, that's a problem. But the thing is, this is a very controversial subject. So a lot of people are totally okay talking about all these aspects of obesity, but they're reluctant to really talk about the actual magnitude of effect that a lot of these things have, right? They're they're reluctant to talk about the difficult things. You look at people talking about transgender athletes. These conversations need to happen. They're difficult, but they need to happen. People's reluctance to have difficult conversations just because they're like, well, I don't want to get canceled. I don't want to be, you know, ostracized or whatever. It's like, do your job, do your job. If you're actually going to say that, Hey, I am someone who does this for the industry. I'm I'm someone who does this to help people. Then you actually have to help people. You can't just omit certain information because of how it may reflect on you. Like you're not the one who like, I'm not coming out here saying, this is my opinion. I'm saying, this is what the data shows. It may change. It may not. But either way, we need to have this conversation. And if you could imagine having a relationship with, you know, a partner, wife, husband, whatever, where any time something was difficult, you just swept it under the rug and refused to talk about it, like how long do you think that relationship is going to last, and how how toxic do you think it's going to become? You know, we need to have these conversations, and they're probably going to be awkward before they become elegant. You need to be able to verbalize things, make mistakes, you know, share your opinions, even if they're wrong have someone kind of refute them or give them a rebuttal mm-hmm. like that, that sort of combat like the back and forth that's where you come to realize what's actually going on but if you prevent the op- people the opportunity to actually have these conversations we never are going to move forward ever and that's yeah. that's by and large the biggest frustration I have I know I'm getting a little emotional right now no it's I'm good I'm, this is something I'm very passionate about but it's it's very frustrating when I see people just refusing to have these conversations especially in in fields where that's their specialization
1: right. And the nature of social media is such that you can isolate yourself to that one train of thought to say, listen, I identify with carnivore and carnivore is it, and completely close yourself off to any other validating information that might potentially prove you wrong in any capacity. It's to say nothing about whether it's right or wrong for anyone whatsoever under any circumstances. I'm not arguing that. What I am arguing is being open to the conversation of who might this be warranted for, who might it not be warranted for, as opposed to being viscerally bound and emotionally bound to this ideology around Mm -hmm. food, around keto, around carnivore, around vegan. It's like we are in food infancy as to what's happening in our environment, the nature of food. And, you know, so it really is, it's paramount that we do have those conversations and open our eyes to the complexity of the food world and effect on physiology that we're living in to say nothing of, you know, disease classification and not wanting to offend people around classifying them as obese or otherwise. That's not fat shaming. It's saying, listen, I mean, there's clinical diagnoses at play here that potentially put you at
0: much higher risk. That's not fat shaming. Yeah. When it really boils down to it, almost every conversation that I've had with someone who's genuinely coming from the same place of like wanting to learn, wanting to understand, I can't even tell you how many times I've had a conversation with someone who was someone who didn't agree with me, but we both left learning and we both didn't hate each other for it. You know what I mean? I think most people actually agree on a lot more than they disagree on, but there's this like perception of like, you know, there's the people who are like, you know, the the fat haters and shamers or whatever. And then the over acceptance of obesity and pretending like it doesn't have any health consequences or, you know, yeah. People saying like, Oh, you don't need carbs at all. Or you, you have to have carbs or whatever. And it's like, We probably agree on most things, but we do need to kind of parse out the details. And in order to do that, we need to have more open dialogue and and discussions, and it needs to be ongoing, you know? So, yeah.
1: Um, Listen, Daniel, this has been awesome. Uh, You're obviously a wealth of knowledge. So tell me, where can people find out more about
0: you, more about Kabuki Strength? Uh, Yeah. So you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube at Daniel underscore DeBrock. I post on Facebook, but I'm really only ever going to engage people on, on Instagram because I'm on Facebook, like once every three months. Right. On. Um, so Instagram, I'm very active. Uh, I always respond to DMS and things like that. Uh, in terms of Kabuki strength, you can go to www.kabukistrength.com and they have like a bunch of articles. We've got a lots of different resources. We've got coaching and all, all sorts of different things, including like equipment. We have our own fabrication, uh, manufacturing plant and all that stuff. So it's
1: pretty awesome, cool. man. Well, Uh, I really appreciate your time. It's been awesome having you on. We'll have to do it again soon. Good luck. I think you mentioned that you're moving to the US from Canada uh, to Portland. So good luck with the move there and um, keep up the good work, brother. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this content valuable, here are four ways I can help you in your nutrition journey for free. One, Grab a free copy of my Fat Loss Fix Guide at fatlossfixguide.com. Two, join my free group at smartnutritionmadesimple.com. Three, subscribe to my YouTube channel at smartnutritionmadesimpletv.com. Four, leave a five-star rating and positive review so that we can gain access to more nutrition experts ready to share their knowledge with you and ultimately help more people make smart nutrition simple.